0: Last week, you guys, I showed you a slide where I talked about the evidence for the God of the Bible, if you recall. And I showed you four different strands of evidence to answer the question, how do we know that the biblical claims are true? You guys remember that? And the four strands of evidence that I supplied were miracles, predictive prophecy, the perfection of God's Word, and historical and archaeological evidence. And of course, it was all predicated on the reliability of the biblical manuscripts. So last week, we proved that the biblical manuscripts are reliable, and we do have access to the words of the prophets and apostles. Okay, so now that's already settled. That's a done issue. That battle's been fought and it's been won. Okay? So tonight, we're going to be looking at, specifically, predictive prophecy in the perfection of God's Word. We're going to be looking at predictive prophecy because when we look at prophecies that are made in the Bible, Well in advance of the events actually happening, it actually demonstrates that there's a God in heaven who knows the future and He is, in fact, the author of the Bible. So, first of all, I want to talk about two different types of prophecy that we see in Scripture. The first kind is what I call forth-telling prophecy. This is the type of prophecy that has to do with the calling of God's people to repentance, faith, and obedience to the true living God. Okay, so let me give you an example of this. Isaiah 1:16 we see the prophet the Lord say through the prophet wash yourselves make yourselves clean remove the evil of your deeds from my sight cease to do evil so here we see the true living God calling his people to repentance right and he's doing that so that they may have faith may have obedience in him. So this is a foretelling prophecy. This is God calling his own people back to repentance. Now, we're not going to be dealing with this type of prophecy, but rather we're going to be dealing with what's called foretelling prophecy. Okay, And foretelling prophecy has to do with predictions of future events that come to be accurately fulfilled. This type of prophecy is only possible by God who knows the future. And again, you're going to see spectacular prophecies made tonight that demonstrate there's a God in heaven who knows the future, and therefore we know that the Bible is, in fact, written by God. Now, I uh, used a man named Barton Payne. He had a book called, the, I think it's called The Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecies, if I recall correctly. And in it, he had 1,817 predictions in the Bible That's how many predictions he sees in the Bible total, okay? And, of course, let me show you the breakdown. There's 1,239 in the Old Testament, and there's 578 in the New Testament. Now, realize, friends, in the New Testament, some of them are divided between Jesus' first coming, but most of them apply to his second coming, his second advent, okay? But anyway, if you add those numbers up, you should come up with 1,817 predictions. And then he further breaks them down into non-Messianic and then to messianic prophecies. And we're going to be looking at both types here tonight. Okay? Now, I want to mention something particular about the accurate predictions found in the Bible. And I want to talk about how the accurate predictions in the Bible are distinguished between prognostications made in the culture today. So, for instance, if you go to Las Vegas, you may hear people give predictions. You may hear predictions about weather. You may hear predictions about all sorts of stuff. Everybody's heard of Nostradamus. By the way, Nostradamus really wasn't right about anything when you start looking at the facts. And I'm going to show you five areas where the Bible really shines and is far different than any other predictions that men come up with. The first category that the Bible distinguishes itself in is this. They are not merely conjectural guesses, okay? They are not merely conjectural guesses as to future information. Biblical prophecies are not merely the reading of the trends in the cultures. In fact, you're going to see tonight that a lot of the prophecies are made going against the trends of culture, okay? Third, they are predictions of human contingencies that are completely unknowable through natural means, okay? In other words, there's no way to know these events apart from being God because there's very specific things that human beings are going to do and to accomplish that only God would know in the future. Number four, biblical prophecies are made before the event occurs, and you're going to see that sometimes as a far in advance as like 1,100 years tonight. You'll see that. And then finally, number five, they are often very unusual events being predicted. And I'll show you an example tonight where uh, debris is literally thrown in the ocean to build a causeway to attack a city. And that's, wouldn't you say that's a little unusual? And that's something you don't hear about every day. That, you'll see, is a prophecy that's made by Ezekiel. Okay, So those are the five categories that distinguish the predictions in the Bible from prognostications that we see every day. Now, I want to start uh, in our non-Messianic prophecies looking at Isaiah's amazing prediction of Cyrus. And, of course, we see this in the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, verses 26 through 45-4. This is what the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah. He says, It is I who says of Jerusalem, She shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah she shall be built, and I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire, and declare to Jerusalem, She will be built. And of the temple, Your foundation will be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, His anointed For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you. By your name. Now friends, before we start in talking about the amazing aspect of this prophecy, namely the prediction of Cyrus, I want to talk about, notice he's predicting that Jerusalem is going to have to be rebuilt. Well, when Isaiah writes this, in the latest he could have written it is 690 B.C., when he writes this, Jerusalem hasn't been sacked yet by the Babylonians. They don't come under siege until 605 B.C., and the city isn't completely sacked until 586 so this is written hundreds of years prior to Jerusalem even being sacked, yet he's predicting that in fact Jerusalem is going to have to be rebuilt and the temple. So that in of itself is amazing, right? And in fact, Isaiah 39, he prophesies that Babylon will end up sacking Jerusalem. Alright? So right away, even the fact that he's saying this about Jerusalem is astonishing. But let's look at what he talks about Cyrus. This is truly amazing. Again, Isaiah wrote this around 690 BC, and I'm giving it the worst case scenario. It could have been written actually up towards 715 BC, okay? But we know for sure it was written by 690, all right? Now, when did Cyrus come on the scene? Well, Cyrus, he was not even born, my friends, until 599 BC, okay? So, some, what, 91 years later. So, friends, at the time of this prophecy, his mother hasn't even been born. Can you imagine somebody making a prophecy about our current president, Barack Obama, before his mother's even born? Friends, that's astonishing, calling this person by name. That's what the Lord has done. Now, how do we know that Cyrus is, in fact, born in 599? We know that because he was 40 years old when he becomes a ruler in 559 B.C. Okay, So he doesn't become a ruler until 559. Again, Isaiah writes this in 690 B.C., so what is that? Let's see if I do my math right. It should be 131 years prior, right? Does everybody concur with that math? That's amazing, is it not? And Cyrus does not make the decree to bring the Jews back to Jerusalem until 538. 538 B.C. Friends, Isaiah writes this in 690. He is calling not just to a particular ruler. He's calling the particular ruler by name. Friends, this is an astonishing prophecy, and it's so astonishing. Again, that's why liberal scholars had to try to claim that Isaiah must have been written after the the fact. Okay, And that's why they call it this Deutero-Isaiah. So there was two Isaiahs. There was the prophet, and then later on, after these things actually happened, there was another man who just signed his name to the check, so to speak, and then he wrote these things that they happened after the fact. But again, I showed you last week, that beyond a shadow of a doubt we can prove that Isaiah was written by one man, the prophet, the son of Amos, from 640 to 690 B.C. Okay, we have the evidence on our side, all right? So, friends, this is a spectacular prophecy and, again, shows us there is, in fact, a God who knows the future. Now, let me show you Jeremiah's prediction of Edom's doom. Now, let me talk a little bit about Edom before I get into this. Edom, is everybody familiar with Edom and where they come from? They come from Esau. These are descendants of Esau. And if you read in Genesis chapter 25, do you remember when Esau and Jacob are born? There's the prophecy that the older will serve the younger. Does everybody recall that? Right? All right. If you guys recall that, the, the where were we? we? We're talking about uh, Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob is going to end up being served by Esau. Esau is going to have to serve Jacob. Correct? And so Jacob is the one who's actually going to be served by the older. Now, normally, the older is the one who gets the birthright, correct? Well, Edom, all of the Edomites are called Edomites because they are descendants from Esau. Now, what does Edom mean? It literally means red. Remember, when Esau is born, he appears red, right? And that's why he's called Esau. And he also, he betrays his birthright for what? A red bowl of beans, And so, Edom in Hebrew literally means red ones. And so, all of his descendants appear red. And where do they settle? They settle in the south area of the Dead Sea in the Red Rock. So, you got the red one who comes out of the tomb, or out of the womb, sorry, and he he betrays his birthright for a red bowl of beans. And then all of his descendants said they settle where the red rock is, okay? Now... The reason why God is going to pronounce judgment... Remember, these are the half-brothers... They're the, the brothers, I should say, to Jacob, to the descendants of Israel. The reason why God is so angry with them is because Edom ends up attacking Israel when Babylon attacks. So they're on Israel's side, and then it seems like Babylon might win, and they switch over. And so in the 586 destruction of Jerusalem, the Edomites helped the Babylonians sack Jerusalem. That's why God is so angry with them, Okay. So let me put up the passage here, Jeremiah 49, 10, 17 through 19. The Lord says this, he says, But I have stripped Esau bare. I have uncovered his hiding places. O you who live in the clefts of the rock, who occupy the height of the hill, though you make your nest as high as an eagle's, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. Edom will become an object of horror, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah with its neighbors, says the Lord. Now here's the kicker. No one will live there, nor will a man reside in it. I'm going to show you that this is amazingly fulfilled. Now, first of all, I want you to realize that Edom, again, attacks Jerusalem with the Babylonians in 586. That makes God really angry. But what happens is in 515 B.C., the nomadic tribes, the Nabataeans, they're the ones who attack Edom, and they push the Edomites all out of their land. Okay, And the Edomites end up settling into an area just south of Judah, Okay, so they move from south of the Dead Sea to just south of Judah and they become the Idumeans. Now, let me give you a little history lesson. When Jesus is born in the manger, who is king but Herod the Great? Herod the Great is what? He's an Idumean. He's a descendant of Esau. Right? Now, think about it. Herod the Great has the army, he has the power, and he has the money. And yet, when you and I are to believe... When we read the birth narratives of Jesus, because remember, Jesus is from who? He's from the lineage of Jacob. We are to believe that the king of Israel is the one in the manger, not the one with the army and the power and the authority, the one from Esau. Do you see the distinction? So there's, there's conflict there, isn't there? But the point is, in our discussion tonight, these men end up becoming Edomians, the Edomites, and what happens then is in 636 A.D., The Muslim assault on the area of Petra leaves not a person left in Petra and the surrounding cities. Friends, I was just there in Israel in October. I went to Petra. There's nobody living there. There's nobody living in these cities. The only people that go through these areas are tourists. Tourists and maybe terrorists. I don't know if there's terrorists there or not, but there's nobody living there. Friends, can you imagine a prophecy hundreds of years in advance saying that all of California would get up and leave? There would be nobody left in California. We're talking about a huge nation. The nation of Edom no longer exists. They all moved up. Now, quite frankly, with the economic shape California is in, that may be a likely scenario. That would be a prognostication, right? But friends, let's face it. This is an amazing prophecy. Not one single person was left in Edom, amazingly fulfilling the prophecy we see here through Jeremiah. Again, this demonstrates that, in fact, there is a God in heaven who has authored the Bible now, let me show you Ezekiel's prophecy of Tyre and talking about Tyre's doom. Now, Tyre is in modern-day Lebanon. It was built on the coast and had two... I want you to think about two cities that belonged to Tyre. There was one on the main the, the mainland right on the coast, and so it abutted up right next to the Mediterranean. But then they also had an island fortress, okay? And I'll, I'll explain why that's important in a minute. But God is angry again with Tyre because they have, in fact sided with the enemies of god's people as well and they had decided to help the babylonians in the 586 destruction of jerusalem as well So here's what the lord says about tire in ezekiel 26 3 through 4 The lord says this thus says the lord god behold. I am against you O tire and I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings its waves now Let me stop there notice. It's going to be many nations Okay, And the nations are going to come up as the sea brings waves. So think of waves lapping against a rock. It's going to be wave after wave of these nations coming against Tyre. Now, we come to the uh, plural pronoun they, and again, that's a reference to the many nations. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. Now, this is an amazing prophecy. And the Lord says, and I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. All right, now let me continue on with the prophecy. Let's move to verse 7. The Lord continues, he says, Behold, I will bring upon Tyre from the north, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now, the reason why I'm putting this passage up here is because when we see the rest of the prophecy, you have to understand who the he is. The he that you see here is a reference back to Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, does that all make sense? Everybody with me? So in verse 11 of 20, uh, the 26th chapter of Ezekiel, the Lord continues, he says, With the, the hooves of horses he will trample all your streets talking about Nebuchadnezzar again. He will slay your people with the sword and your strong pillars will come down to the ground. Now, listen to the switch. It went from a third-person singular to a third-person plural. Also, they, and again, the picture here now is again to the many nations, okay? And they will make a spoil of your riches, break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses and throw your stones and your timbers and your debris into the water. Now, friends, the reason why I point out the distinction between the he and the they is because a lot of liberal scholars have claimed, hey, Nebuchadnezzar didn't do this. Nebuchadnezzar never pulled this off, and in fact, God's a liar. But, friends, notice we have to be careful students of God's Word. God's Word says, yes, Nebuchadnezzar will do his thing, but it's the many nations together that will pull off this final feat of throwing the stones and the timbers and the debris into the water. And friends, you're going to see an amazing fulfillment of this prophecy. Let me show you how this works. Ezekiel's prophecy was written in 586 B.C. We know this because in Ezekiel 26.1, it talks about the 11th year from the king, I think it's Jehoiakim. Everything's measured from Jehoiakim. He is actually the king of Judah, In 597, okay, Babylon gets rid of him. Then they put their own king, Zedekiah, in in 597. Well, he lasts about 11 years. Then they get sick of him too and they sack Jerusalem. So when you subtract 11 years from 597, you get 586. So we know conclusively that Ezekiel wrote this in 586. Well, why is that significant? Well, I'll show you. Well, Babylon laid siege to Tyre from 585 to 573 B.C. Now, you may be reasoning in your mind, you're saying self. That doesn't seem like too much of a prophecy because after all, couldn't Ezekiel see these things happening? Couldn't he see Babylon approaching Tyre? And you're right, he could. But notice, Babylon laid siege to Tyre, but the final fulfillment of the prophecy is amazing and it doesn't happen until Alexander's army finished off Tyre in the year 332 B.C. Listen to this. By building a causeway, to an island fortress Tyre had built. Alexander's army literally scraped Tyre's debris into the sea. Friends, what happened is when the Babylonians laid siege to Tyre, the people, the, they had, remember the two cities? The one on the mainland was sacked and it was razed to the ground. And all of that debris, uh, what happens is, remember the people of Tyre, they take all their valuables and they go out to this island fortress. Well, Alexander and his generals are so tenacious, they take the debris left from the mainland city and they throw it in the water. And they build this big dock, this big causeway that leads out to the island fortress. Friends, look how amazing the fulfillment is of these prophecies. Literally, this was fulfilled. Look, look at this. Again, Ezekiel 26.4, And I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. Or 26.12, And throw your stones and your timbers and your debris into the water. Friends, this was prophesied some 200 years in advance and yet was fulfilled to the very T. That's exactly what Alexander and his army did. Friends, this is an amazing prophecy. This shows us that God not only predicts things, he predicts spectacularly, uh, spectacularly and he also predicts very minute details, doesn't he? Again, this distinguishes biblical prophecy from mere prognosticators who just make generalizations. Okay? Again, this proves that, in fact, there's a God in heaven who knows the future, and he is the author of the Bible. Now, let me show you a, a prophecy regarding Egypt. And again, Egypt is one of the main enemies of Israel. And we see a prophecy against her in Ezekiel 30.13, where the Lord says, Thus says the Lord God, I will also destroy the idols and make the images cease from Memphis and there will no longer be a prince in the land of Egypt. Now think about what's being stated here. There will no longer be a prince or an Egyptian prince in the land. That's like saying for hundreds of years there will never be an American president. I mean, friends, that's amazing, isn't it? That's quite startling. You would think, well, wow, I'd like to see evidence of that. Well, friends, we see this actually happen. What happens, this is written actually in 571 B.C. by Ezekiel, well, in 568 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, sure enough, he invades Egypt and he takes the images from Memphis. Now, when you read the account, sometimes instead of Memphis, it'll say Noph, but that is just another term for Memphis, okay? So just in case your Bible has that. So, in fact, this is fulfilled, but the red portion, the portion that I've highlighted, becomes fulfilled later because in the year 343 B.C., the last native pharaoh, the II, loses in battle to the Persians, Okay, So he loses in battle in 343 B.C. to the Persians, and he never there's never again after that an Egyptian prince, ever. Because what happens after 343 B.C. is the Macedonians and the Romans, they take over in succession, and they ensure that Egypt never again has an Egyptian prince for more than 2,000 years. In fact, Hosni Mubarak today, yes, he's an Egyptian, but he's the president and he's, he actually divides his duties with the prime minister. There are no more princes. So for thousands of years, they didn't have any Egyptians on the throne. And then finally, when they get their own sovereignty back, they don't have princes anymore. They have presidents and prime ministers who share the authority. So, friends, for thousands of years, this prophecy in Ezekiel 30.13 has stood as a declaration to the world that God is, in fact, the author of the Bible. Okay, An amazing prophecy. Again, just like saying there would never be another American president, Really astonishing indeed. Now, let me show you uh, Daniel's prophecies. And this is a prophecy that I recommend all of us memorize and we use when we're out in the street. And the reason why I like this prophecy so much is because it mentions the names of the countries so that nothing is left to your imagination. It just spells out Medo-Persian, Greece, okay? Let me show you this spectacular prophecy by Daniel. And the setting here is he has a vision and Gabriel, the angel, explains the vision to him. So in Daniel 8:20 20 through 22, we know this is written about 551 B.C. This is what the Lord says through the prophet Daniel. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Now let's stop right there. When do the Medo-Persians come to power? Well, they don't sack Babylon until 539 B.C. So you can see this is written in advance, right? That's a prophecy. Well, how many years would that be? Somebody help me with the math. Would I say 539? Yeah, 12, 12 years. So at least 12 years in advance, right? Right there? Okay. Then it says the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece and the large horn. Now, again, Greece is mentioned here. They don't come to power till 336 B.C., some 220 years later. Friends, that's amazing. And they're mentioned by name. They don't come to power until 220 years later. This is astonishing. And it says, "And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from, the, from his nation, although not with his power. Let me talk about this large horn because this is an amazing fulfillment of prophecy. The first king, this large horn, again, the first king, is Alexander the Great, and he reigns from 336 to 323 B.C. Now, interestingly, look at where I have my pointer here. In Daniel 8.8, 8, the part of the prophecy includes this. It says about the large horn, or the king, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. Friends, that's exactly what happens to Alexander the Great. He is 33 years old. He is at the height of his military prowess and his physical prowess. And when he's 33 years old, he ends up getting so ill in Babylon that his soldiers have to prop him up with two spears. And he literally is hanging there, and he's doing this so he can say one last goodbye to his soldiers. And all he can do is blink at them as they walk by, and he dies that day, that day that he fell ill. So he's only 33 years old, and it's exactly what was prophesied by Daniel some 220 years earlier. Friends, this is amazing. This is spectacular. This is, what precision. This is exciting. My gosh, I get so excited about this, right? So not only that, you guys, but the large horn, he dies, just as prophesied by Daniel, and then it prophesies that four kingdoms would come about. That's exactly what we see in the, the kingdom of Greece. Four kingdoms come about. Cassander, he takes Macedonia. This is actually pronounced Lusmachus. He takes Thrace and uh, Asia Minor. Seleucus takes Syrian Babylonian. Babylonia. Now, by the way, Seleucus... Has anybody heard of the Seleucids? This is where Antiochus Epiphanes IV, he ends up coming from this family. He is the one who desecrates the Jewish temple in 165 BC that leads to the Maccabean Revolt. He has a foreshadowing of the Antichrist to come. That's where he comes from, okay? So, in the fourth kingdom comes from Ptolemy. He takes Egypt and Arabia. Now, Ptolemy II... Remember, guys, remember from last week, he is the one that authorizes the translation of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the of the Hebrew. So they went from Greek to Hebrew. Well, that's Ptolemy second, so that's where he comes from. So you can see again, friends, the major point here is that just as prophesied by Daniel, after the large horn or the, the main king dies, it's broken into four kingdoms, and that happens and it was prophesied 220 years prior to it happening. Friends, that's astonishing. Again, these aren't just... You know, arbitrary, yeah, this may happen, or just generalities. These are very specific things that are being outlined in the Word of God. And again, I think we should use prophecies like this when we're out in the street and people say, well, why would you believe that the Word of God or that the Bible is the Word of God? And just say to them, well, have you considered Daniel chapter 8? Did you know that he prophesied that Greece would come about 220 years prior? That Alexander the Great would die an untimely death. That his kingdom would be broken into four separate kingdoms. Friends, that's what happened. And we can use it around the street. I have used it down at the University of Minnesota. And sadly, what's sad is most kids are so biblically illiterate, they don't even know who Daniel is. But friends, that's their fault. Okay, That's their fault and the, the, the fault of their churches. But nonetheless, we proclaim it. Okay, It's good, good, solid evidence. All right, now, what I want to do now is I want to switch gears and start looking at the Messianic prophecies. And of course, the Messianic prophecies, I want to talk about the number of them real quickly. This Barton Payne who had this encyclopedia, he actually sees 191 literally fulfilled prophecies in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Realize that there are differing scholars that have different numbers. I've seen 333, but I think when we look at the 333 number, that has to do with prophecies that relate to Jesus' second advent as well. So this is probably a good number for his first advent. Okay, First advent meaning his first coming, the second advent, his second coming. Okay, There's a mathematician, anybody ever heard of Peter Stoner? He's actually dead now, I forget how long ago he died. But he was a famous mathematician slash statistician and he calculated the odds of fulfillment of just 48 of these 191 prophecies to happen in any one individual to be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Now, I have heard the analogy, and I don't know who calculated this and who has the time to calculate these things, but I've heard it said that the same odds would be akin to if you took the state of Texas and you filled it up to the waist, your waist level, with coins, specifically I think uh, nickels were used, and you marked one of the nickels that are stacked waist high in all of the state of Texas, and you took a person who's blindfolded and you told them to select a coin, and they had, of course, select the one that you painted red, they have the same odds of picking the red coin as one person fulfilling all these prophecies. Now, why is it so spectacular? Because one man is fulfilling a lot of variables. Think about all the different cities that existed. He comes from one that's prophesied. Think about all the different ways he can be betrayed. Well, he's betrayed by 30 pieces of silver, by a friend. His disciples leave. All these different things he can't help unless he's God. In other words, no mere mortal can contrive these things you see what i'm saying and all these different events all these different scenarios they focus into one man jesus christ jesus of nazareth so anyway this is tremendous friends the odds of these things happening are astronomical and again gives us more evidence to use on the street to show people that jesus is in fact fully god fully man the long awaited jewish messiah now, the prophecies, again, prophecies we're going to focus on are the ones that Jesus could not manipulate if he were not, in fact, God. So realize I could get into a lot of different prophecies. The ones we're going to be looking at are ones that he cannot contrive. In other words, you can't, friends, you may be, um, let's take an example. In Zechariah 9.9, 9, Jesus did contrive that. He brought the donkey together and he rode it into Jerusalem. Okay, and he fulfilled that prophecy. Don't get me wrong, it's still so spectacular, But what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on prophecies like, for instance, his betrayal. He can't control that. The method of his crucifixion, he can't control that. The fact that the soldiers gamble for his garments, he can't control that if he's a mere mortal. But he can if he's God. And that's what we're arguing for. He is, in fact, God. The the, the God and the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are the ones who are, in fact, dictating the fact that these prophecies will occur. Okay, so let me show you the first one that I really like. Micah 5.2 2. It's written by Micah the prophet. He is prophesying primarily to Judah. And he lives around 700 B.C. And I want want you to see the context of this passage. In Micah chapter 5, Micah has bad news in the first verse. He talks about the fact that Babylon is going to sting and insult the king of Judah. Okay, And so this is the insult that happens when The Israelites, specifically the southern kingdom of Judah, are brought into captivity. But the good news comes here in verse 2, and this is actually part of the gospel. Here comes the good news. Even though Israel is going to lose their leadership, they're going to lose their nation, one day good news is coming, and that's where he picks it up in verse 2. He writes this, he says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now, I want to look at the end right there. Notice, whoever is going to come forth comes from days of eternity, literally of eternal. That's what it says in the Hebrew, of eternal. And so whoever this is, is not a finite being. This is no mere mortal. The Messiah who's going to come from Bethlehem is eternal. Well, who is the only one that's eternal in the Scriptures? Well, God. Um, Again, our Exodus 3 theology. Who should I say that sent me to the Israelites, Moses asked God says, tell him, I am sent you. He is the eternal one, whether we believe in him or not. He is the eternal one, whether we can describe him or not. He is the eternal one, the self-existent great I am. And that's exactly what's being prophesied here. This person that's going to come from Bethlehem is God. Now, the other thing I want you to notice is where does he come from? Well, he comes from Bethlehem. Now, a lot of you probably know this, but the term baith, baith in Hebrew means House. So anytime you see Bethel or Bethlehem, it's house of something. Bethel is the house of God. Well, Bethlehem, lechem is bread in Hebrew. So this is the house of bread. Okay, so now what does Jesus call himself? But he says in John 6:35, I am, and of course, this is a, uh, an attestation to his deity here. I am what the bread of life. So here we have the bread of life who was born where in the house of bread. Okay, and what's more Jesus says this in John 12:24. He says truly truly I say to you Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies it remains alone But if it dies it bears much fruit What i'm going to show you in a couple of slides is that the bread of life is born in the house of bread He's buried not just on any day friends. He's buried during the feast of unleavened bread Okay, so this is astonishing. This is great prophecy and again fulfilled in one person again. This demonstrates friends that there's a God in heaven who is manipulating these events because nor, no mere mortal could make them happen. Now let me show you a spectacular prophecy that I've actually talked about before, and this is in Daniel chapter 9 where he predicts the very day that Jesus will come into Jerusalem. It's called Lamb Selection Day, Daniel 9, 24-26. And the setting here in this prophecy is that Daniel had prayed for the restoration of the people of Israel and for Jerusalem and for the temple, and he gets this answer through Gabriel. So Gabriel is giving him this information, and this is the answer for the restoration of Israel. Gabriel says to Daniel, Seventy weeks, now let me, let me, actually let me stop right there, right there. Seventy weeks, by the way, is the same thing as saying 70 uh, heptaphs. Heptaphs are units of seven. So right away we have to figure out through context what this heptaph, this week, is a unit of. It can be weeks, Years, months, and so forth. Well, what we find out in context is it's 77 years. In other words, 70 times 7, which is 490 years. So instead of saying 70 weeks, you could say 490 years have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. So you are to know and discern. Now, here comes the starting point of the prophecy that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And again, these are weeks of years. So that, friends, is 483 years. Now, notice there's seven years left over that's not being talked about. Guess when that happens? That happens at the end of time. We don't know when. That's the seven years of tribulation. Okay, so we're only dealing with 483 of the 490 years. Does that make sense? Well, then he goes on and he describes the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And then he says, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Now, this phrase in Hebrew, talking about cutting off, it means two things. It literally means to be cut off from the land of the living, be killed. Okay, But it also means to be cut off and devoid of any followers. And I think here it's not either or, it's both and. It's yes. Both of those things are true. And we know that because a better translation, actually, this is the NES, and they do a good job, but instead of nothing, it could be literally nobody. So the idea there is the Messiah, not only is he cut off from the land of the living, but what's being stated here is that he's going to be cut off from having any followers. In other words, anybody that believes in him. Okay? Now, why do I say that? Because when he comes into Jerusalem, he is cut off. They don't see him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But rather, they're going to see him as a warrior to kick out the Romans, and they missed it. And we'll talk more about that. So anyway, cutting off means both his death and his being devoid of people who will follow him. Okay. So again, let me show you this prophecy in numerical format. Again, we're dealing with 70 times 7, or 490 years for the prophecy. That's up here. Okay. Then it's broken down to the 69 times 7 weeks, 483 years, until the Messiah will be cut off. All right. Now, the starting point of the prophecy was the decree by Artaxerxes, March 5th, 444 B.C. How do we know that is the starting point? Because there's other decrees given by Persian rulers and by the Medo-Persian rulers to have the Israelites, for instance... Uh, Cyrus gives a decree in 538 that the Jews can go back to Jerusalem how do we know this is the right decree because when you read in context of Daniel read the whole section you'll notice it talks about the rebuilding of the fortifications like the moat and so forth these different parts of Jerusalem well that's exactly what Artaxerxes commands he commands the rebuilding of the fortifications and that what happened March 5th 444 BC so this is the best starting point for this prophecy Okay, So once we nail down that starting point, what we do is we take the 483 years and remind you, let me remind you that these are lunar years of 360 days each. In other words, the Jews were using 12 30-day months. Now, what evidence do we have that they weren't using a 365-day year? Well, let me just show you. Genesis 7 through 8, do you remember the flood account? There's five months where the waters are receding, it equals 150 days. That's predicated just on 30-day months. There are no 31-day months in the prophetic calendar. Okay? Now, what's more, we also have evidence within Daniel itself. Daniel 7, 24 through 25 talks about a time, times, and half a time. Now, time is a year. Times is two years. So if you add those together, it's three. And then half a time is a half. That's three and a half years. We know that for sure because the book of Revelation picks up on that very theme. And we see it in Revelation 11.3, 12.6, and 13.5. Now, what do those passages talk about this same time period? They talk about 1,260 days or 42 months. And again, 1,260 days or 42 months is all predicated on 30-day months. So that is the type of year, that the lunar calendar, that the Jews are using. So what we do is we have to use what the Bible uses So we're going to multiply the 483 years times the 360 days a year. You end up, and you can write this down, I didn't have room to put it on here, but 173,880 days, okay? 173,880 days. When you add that to March 5th, 444 B.C., you come up with the end point of the prophecy, which is the 10th day of Nisan, 33 A.D., which is Lamb Selection Day. Friends, this is the very day that Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on his donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. And what does he say in Luke chapter 19 around verse 44? He says to Jerusalem, Oh, Jerusalem, if you, even you, had known what brings for you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Right? Remember he says that? Why? Because he recognized that the Jewish people didn't want the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world but rather they wanted a warrior king to kick out the Romans. And isn't that human nature? We don't want somebody to take away our sins. What we want somebody is to whoop the can of our enemies. Don't? That, that's human nature, isn't it? And that's what the Jews wanted. Okay. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to build off of this here, and I'm going to show you how, in fact, Jesus fulfills the Jewish feast. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do some mental gymnastics with you. I'm going to take you back to the book of Exodus because remember I promised I would show you not only the precision in the prophecies but also the perfection of God's word. So I'm going to show you how Jesus fulfills all of the Jewish feasts. I'm going to bridge off of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 just uh, pr- predicted that Jesus would come into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day. Where does Lamb Selection Day come from? Let me show you. We have to f- To find this out, we have to go back to Exodus chapter 12. Now what happened in Exodus chapter 12 was if you recall this is the most important month of all the months for the Israelites why because God is going to take the Israelites out of Egyptian captivity this becomes the primary redemptive event in the minds of all Israelites the month that they came out of Israel or out of Egypt and they came and they started heading towards their promised land okay does that make sense so in Exodus chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 God says, This is going to be the month of months for you, and He commands that each family selects an unblemished lamb, and they're to do it on the tenth day of the month. Okay? So again, Jesus comes in on this very day. He is the So now remember, since fourteen oh five BC, every year Jews have to select an unblemished lamb. They did that for hundreds and hundreds of years. And finally one day. Jesus comes riding in on that very day, and he's saying, choose me. So spectacular, right? But let me just, for the sake of time, continue onward. What else does God say in Exodus chapter 12? Well, in verses 6 through 7, he says, each family must slay the Passover lamb on the 14th day. Okay? And then, in verses 15 through 20 of Exodus, he institutes the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and that's on the 15th. And then there's a feast that's very important for us in our understanding of redemptive history called the Feast of first fruits. That happens on the 16th day of Nisan, according to Leviticus 23. So you see how these all line up? Let me show you the last seven days of Jesus' life and show you how he fulfills all these feasts. Again, Jesus comes in, friends, not just on any day. He comes into Jerusalem on the 10th day of Nisan, Lamb Selection Day, and then he's cut off. The Jews want nothing to do with him, right? They want a military ruler. They don't want the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so what happens is he's on the course then to be crucified. And sure enough, on Friday the 14th, Jesus, remember up here, that's when they're just supposed to crucify or sacrifice their lamb. That's exactly where, when Jesus Christ is crucified. He is crucified during the exact time that the Jews would be slaughtering their sacrificial lambs. And in fact, at 3 o'clock when he breathes his last, the shofar from the Jewish temple would be blown. in a moment of silence would occur all over Jerusalem. And all the faithful Jews would take a moment of silence because they knew that the Passover lamb had been slain for them. And it was a prophecy that pointed them forward to the day of Messiah. But little did they know on the 14th day of Nisan, 33 AD, that at the moment the shofar blew and there was silence, their Messiah was actually on the cross and said, It is finished. The very time that the shofar blows. He fulfills that. Okay, so he fulfills this Passover lamb idea perfectly. But what's more, friends, is he's buried in the ground on that very day. And remember, to the Jewish reckoning, any part of a day is considered a full day. So Jesus is buried in the ground on the 14th, right here. So any part of a day is a full day. So that's day one, day two, day three. Okay, because that's when he's raised from the dead. But notice, friends, he's in the ground the full day of what day? The feast of unleavened bread. Remember, the bread of life... He comes from the house of bread. He's buried not just on any day, but during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What's leaven a symbol of? It's a symbol of sin. The sinless bread of life who says, unless a kernel of wheat fall into the ground and die, how can it bring forth life? Who's from the house of bread is in the ground on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Friends, this is spectacular. It shows the Jews in the world that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And it gets better. Friends, he's raised, not just on any day, he is raised on the 16th day of Nisan, the Feast of First Fruits. Now, why is this so significant, this Feast of First Fruits? Well, friends, for hundreds and hundreds of years, since 1405 BC, the Jews took this Feast of First Fruits. What they would do is they would take the first portion of the harvest, because remember, this is happening around April and March, March, April, okay? They would take the first portion of their harvest and they would put it on a sheath. And they would do what's called a wave offering. That was what the Feast of First Fruits was. And what they were saying to God was this They were saying to God, Lord, we have this much of the harvest already, and one day we expect, because you're trustworthy, we'll get the rest. So, friends, Jesus is raised not just on any day, he's raised on the Feast of First Fruits. And so, friends, you and I, in a sense, have our Messiah as our wave offering. What we can say is this to the Lord we can say, Lord, we have this much of the resurrection but we know you're trustworthy and we trust you that one day the rest of us are going to follow because we're the rest of the harvest. And that's exactly what Paul picks up on in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty when he says Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, meaning one day you and I will follow. We're the rest of the harvest. See, friends, he's not just raised from the dead on any day. He's raised on the Feast of first fruits. Friends, this is amazing. It's amazing fulfillment that Jesus fulfills all these feasts, but it even gets better. Okay, now, I know I'm throwing a lot at you, and by the way, if you feel overwhelmed, good. We should feel overwhelmed. Friends, this is amazing. God's word is so powerful, and what I want to show you is the precision in the number of details because they are overwhelming. And again, it demonstrates that in fact there's a God who has authored the scriptures. Let me show you how this continues. Well, let me tell you the story. Do you guys remember when the first Pentecost happens? It happens 50 days after the Saturday Okay, you've got the Saturday, which is the Sabbath. The day after that, you count 50 days. Okay, that's Pentecost. And it's a celebration of the whole harvest because that's when you get all the the ingathering of the complete harvest. So the first fruits is the, the first portions of the harvest. Pentecost is a celebration of all the harvest. Okay, does that make sense? Well, what we see is the first Pentecost happens where? At Mount Sinai. And what happens at Mount Sinai but the giving of the law? Moses goes up to meet with God at Mount Sinai, but what happens is the Jewish people, they can't see him. They can't see God. And so what do they do? They build a golden calf. They fall into idolatry and they sin against the Lord. And what happens is God is so angry, he gives the judgment to the Levites. He allows them to hand out swords to the people. And what happens? 3,000 perish, don't they? 3,000 die that day. But now what I want to show you is to contrast that with the Pentecost that happens in the New Testament. Because this is a fulfillment of what Jesus did for us through the new covenant, which is in his blood. Let me show you. Exodus 33, This is the first Pentecost over here. 3,000 perish at the giving of the law. But the new covenant at Pentecost in the New Testament in Acts 2, at the giving of the spirit, 3,000 come to eternal life. And again, people can say, well, that was just contrived or that was just coincidental. Friends, there's a lot of facts that are being just coincidental here, aren't they? 3,000 come to eternal life at the Pentecost, at the giving of the Spirit, whereas 3,000 perished at the giving of the law. Now, is that coincidental? I think not. And again, these are facts that we can bring up to the lost and say, can any single man contrive this? Has there any time been an author in human history that has been been able to articulate a novel this intricate? This intricately woven where Genesis all the way to Revelation is saying the same thing? I think not. And again, friends, this is evidence that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. Okay? Now, let me show you some more amazing prophecies. We'll go through some of these. And there's just a list. You guys probably have your own list, too. Let's just go through some of these. Again, Exodus 12, 46, it talks about how the Passover lamb could not be broken, none of its bones and then in Psalm 2420, we see the same prophecy applied to the Messiah, that none of his bones could be broken. And sure enough, none of his bones are broken on the cross. Why? Because remember the soldiers, they go to sledge his legs? And why don't they? They find out he's already dead by thrusting the spear in his side. Remember, they had to, um, the way you die on a cross is you asphyxiate. So in order to speed that process up, if you weren't dying fast enough, they'd sledge your legs, and so you would asphyxiate then. Well, Jesus is already dead. And again, that fulfills these prophecies. Um, Zechariah 11:12, he'd be betrayed by thirty pieces of silver. Again, friends, how can you, if you're just a mere human, how can you contrive or you know make this happen? The fact, the, the way your enemies will betray you, you can't make that stuff up. You can't make that happen. You can't make your enemies hate you for thirty pieces of silver, right? Maybe for twenty, but not for thirty. Zechariah 13:7, he's forsaken by his disciples. Psalm 16:10 is a really amazing prophecy of his resurrection. Psalm 22. There's many things in here. Let me just give you three. The Messiah would be sneered and mocked at. His hands and his feet would be pierced. By the way, that's a thousand years before crucifixion came into vogue. His clothing would be gambled for. Psalm 41:9. Uh, he'd be betrayed by a friend. Psalm 69:21. The Messiah would be given gall and vinegar. Think about this. Jesus is offered two different drinks when he's going to the cross. Remember he makes a promise at the Last Supper that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine until he drinks it anew with us in the Father's kingdom? Remember the first person offered him fruit of the vine mixed with a narcotic? He spits that out. Why? Because he's going to take the complete wrath of God upon himself, but he's also made a promise to you and I. The next time he drinks the fruit of the vine is with us in the Messianic kingdom. Right? Isn't that beautiful? But what he does accept is this what's called sour wine in your English versions, if you're reading the NAS. And that's actually gall and vinegar. And he does it because this isn't fruit of the vine, according to the Hebrew's mind. And therefore, he's actually fulfilling Psalm 69, 21. So he's fulfilling two prophecies by what he drinks and doesn't drink on the cross. Does that make sense? Again, amazing fulfillment. Psalm 132, 11 and 2 Samuel 7, 14 says that he'd be a descendant of David. Let me talk about this real quick. When I was in Israel on our trip in October, Deb, you remember when we had the Messianic Jews come and speak? There was a Messianic Jew who made a great point. He said what brought him to faith in Jesus Christ was the fact that when he talked to his rabbi, he asked him a question. He says, Rabbi, how do we know when the Messiah comes that he is in fact from the lineage of Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah, and from David? All of our genealogical records were destroyed in the 70 AD destruction by Rome. His rabbi had no answer. And so, friends, do you realize that Jesus Christ is the last one that had the genealogical record intact that could actually back it up? In other words, not only did the genealogical record support all of Jesus' claims, but he was the last one before the destruction of 70 AD that had the genealogical record intact to prove it. So nobody else now, friends, can prove that they're in the genealogical ancestry of David. Only Jesus could. And again, that's powerful information. We can use that when we're witnessing to the Jews. Let me just show you some passages out of Isaiah. And I'm going to finish tonight out of Isaiah 53. So let me just show you some more things that would happen to Messiah. He'd be beaten and spat upon. In fact, his uh, beard would be pulled too. That was a big thing. Isaiah 53.3, he'd be rejected. Messiah would be killed the Messiah would be buried with a rich man. Notice singular. Who was uh, Jesus buried with? He was buried with just one man, Joseph of Arimathea, and I'll show you that in the next slide. Isaiah 53, 12, the Messiah would be crucified with criminals, and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. So tonight, what I want to end on is one of the most amazing prophecies that we've ever seen, really, and I think that's in the Bible because we see the Gospel probably most art- accurately articulated in Isaiah 52:13 through 53, 12. Now, what I want to do is, remember Bob preached on this, and it was a great sermon about the gospel in Isaiah 53. I want to talk about that. And I want you to realize that this passage of prophecy is what's called an inclusio. And what that is, it's a structure where you have bookends, okay? And you have bookends, in other words, that kind of set the whole prophecy off, and the bookends usually will say the same thing. Okay, in other words, you have the same theme in the beginning as in the end. Does that make sense? This is what's called an inclusio. Well, what we see in this prophecy is, remember, there's a lot of suffering going on here with the Messiah. So this prophecy is bookended in the beginning and in the end with his exaltation, his resurrection, his uh, glorification, that sort of thing. Okay. So let me show you. It starts off in 52.13. This is the beginning of this section, actually. And Isaiah says this, he says, My servant will prosper, he will be high and lifted up. Okay, so this is talking about his exaltation. Then at the very end in 53.12, we see the same theme. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Okay, now these are two, again, the book ends saying the same thing. Now let me show you a contrast as we continue in the prophecy. Here's a contrast 52.14 says his appearance was marred more than any man. And again, in 53.10, we say he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. Now, this is actually a reference here to his resurrection. Okay? So again, that's contrasted with his beating and the appearance that was more marred than any man. Now, in the middle, what I want to focus in is Isaiah 53, 5 through 6 and verse 9. And that is kind of the core of his substitutionary atonement. Now, what I want to do is I want to set up a challenge that Jewish people will throw at us because this is the most powerful testimony that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and the only way they can try to get around it is to try to say that the suffering servant that's being talked about here is actually Israel and not Jesus. Okay. Now, let me say it this way. Often in Isaiah, when you see third-person singular pronouns talking about he, a suffering servant, Many times it is talking about Messiah, but there are occasions where that is a reference to Israel. But what I'm going to show you is evidence within this text that we can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Israel is not being talked about here, but rather Jesus or the Messiah. Okay? Why that's so important is then we can use this as a messianic prophecy and eliminate the possibility of Israel being the suffering servant here. Let me show you how we do this. Let's first of all look at verses 5 through 6. So this is verses 5 through 6 here. And it says, But he was pierced, and of course this is Messiah, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. Now that's verse 5. Let me stop there. Notice all the underlying verbs. Each one of these is what's called a passive verb in the Hebrew it's a nif'al pu'al po'al and so forth these are all passive verbs and when we see a passive verb the question we have to ask ourselves is who is the agent that's perpetrating the the event because this is happening to the messiah well who's perpetrating it is god the father Okay, so this is even showing us a reference to the Trinity here in Isaiah 53. It's a passive verb. Somebody's doing it. Who's doing it? It's the goodwill of the Father. He's the one who's doing it. And we see that even in the grammatical construction of the passive verb. Okay, now let's move on into verse 6. Notice it says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Notice the distinction between us and he and him. Us is a reference to Israel. And the he or the him is the Messiah. Do you see the distinction? The plural is Israel and the he is the Messiah. How is it that any Jewish person can claim that this passage is about Israel? No, friends, it says all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. In the Scriptures, there are always two ways. There's the way of the child and the way of the wise man. There's the way of the fool. There's the way of the wise. There's the way of perdition and the way to heaven. There's always only two ways. And what the Scripture is clearly declaring here is that all of these people, whoever they are, they've gone astray and they've gone their own way. Okay. And it says, But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So, again, we see this contrast between the us, the us, which is Israel, and the he, which is Messiah. Now, what's devastating is verse 9. It says, yet he was with a rich man. Again, that's Joseph of Arimathea. Tremendously accurate predictions. Written 700 years before he was even born. Um, he was, again, yet he, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Friends, can any Jewish person, person in good conscience claim that Israelites are people of no violence and that they're people of no deceit? No. In fact, the very words of Isaiah shuts every Israelite's mouth. Every Israelite's mouth will be shut by the word of God. Isaiah 57, four says, Are you not children of rebellion, offspring of deceit? So, friends... Who is, who has the mouth of deceit but the Israelites? But the person being talked about here has no deceit in their mouth. Can it be Israel? No. It must be Messiah. The Lord says this about Israel as well in Isaiah 59-6. He says, their works are works of iniquity and an act of violence is in their hands. Well, friends, the person here that's being described has done no violence. This person alone that is being described is alone a person who is not a sinner. And yet the word of God has clearly declared that every Israelite is. And so for a Jewish person to maintain that this passage is about the suffering servanthood of Israel, they're missing it. And they're missing it badly. And you and I can use it as evidence to prove them, no, this passage is completely about Messiah. It's completely about the substitution atonement of Christ, the fact that he would absorb the full measure of God's wrath on our behalf. Does that make sense? So again, we see the distinction between us, which is Israel, and he, which is the Messiah. The Messiah alone is the one who has no violence nor deceit in his mouth. All right. Now, what kind of conclusion do we draw from these spectacular prophecies? And what I believe, friends, is that prophecy... What we learn from this is that prophecy is primarily the teaching of messianic doctrine. What I want to lay out the case for you in this closing slide is this, that the prophets of old and the apostles in the New Testament, these were men who were consumed with messianic doctrine. In other words, the prophets of old weren't just simply giving out haphazard prophecies. Something would just come into their mind. No, these were men inspired by God, who were engaged in teaching messianic doctrine, who he would be and what he would be about. Let me give you evidence of this from Peter. Remember, Peter botched it badly when he was apostle, but listen to what he says in his first epistle. He says, "...as to this salvation," that's our common salvation, "...the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries." seeking to know, now listen to this, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. What Peter is making the case, again, is these prophets weren't merely coming up with haphazard predictions, but they were engaged in teaching who the Messiah would be, where he would come from, what he would do. And remember, this is Peter who lopped the ear off of Melchus, right? Why? Why? Because to Peter, the only thing that messianic salvation was to bring were the glories. It says right here, the glories to follow. But here you can see evidence that Peter finally gets his theology right. He finally realizes, no, it's the sufferings first, then the glories to follow. Okay, He gets it right. So friends, what is messianic prophecy about? It's about Jesus. And we see the same thing here in the book of Revelation 19.10. Here is The context here is John falls at the feet of the angel and he worships him, right? And this is what the angel says. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Friends, what does prophecy tell us? Prophecy tells us that there is a God in heaven who knows all things. And he is the ultimate author of this book that we call the Bible. Prophecy also tells us that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah, fully God, fully man, who absorbed the, the full measure of God's wrath for all of those who would trust in him. That's what prophecy tells us. And I think we as Christians would do well to take these spectacular prophecies to a dying world, a world who lives in darkness, who hasn't seen the great light of messianic salvation. We can bring these truths out into the street and say, you account for it. I'll sit with you at Perkins. I'll sit with you at any restaurant and we'll go through them and I'll show you that, in fact, messianic salvation is true because these prophecies are so spectacular and they can't get around them. Okay? Friends, that's what kind of evidence we have. We believe in Jesus Christ because it's true. It's not just true because we believe it. And, friends, that's good news.